Good morning, Redeemer. I'd like to add my, my comments to Dave's about how great it was to be away and how good it is to come home. It was a great time with the other elders and leaders from Redeemer as we thought about what God would have for us here. Uh, and I want to echo Dave in saying that we were encouraged once again to be a church that centers on the Word. We preach the Word, we sing the Word, we pray the Word. We want to be a gospel-centered church. I do preach regularly at a church with lasers, <laughs> about once a year, and they have fog on the stage, and I kind of wander up through the fog. You know why you have fog? is so you can see the lasers, and it's really cool, but every, every time I've proposed this to the elders, I've been voted down, so <laughs> just so you'll know. We love that we're centered on the Word. What, is, what does the world need today? What, what does the world need now? Have you uh, heard the song by Burt Bacharach a number of years ago? What the world, the little ditty, right, needs now is love, sweet love. Yeah, right? Y'all, some of you know it. Some of you are old enough to know it, right? I mean, we're going back to the 60s here. It's a silly song, and I'm all for love. But I'd, I think Burt and his friend Hal Davis, who wrote the song, missed it. I, I don't think that's exactly what the world needs. It needs something, doesn't it? As we look at the world around us, it seems like the world's going a bit crazy. To our north, convulsions in Iran about leadership. To our south, Yemen convulses with unrest as the president and the ruler of the military, the military commander, wrestle over leadership. Tens of thousands are taking to the streets. To our west, Bahrain struggles with riots and uprisings. And further west, Egypt, having thrown off their president, has the military in charge and the people hope for something better. Further west still, Libya is torn apart in civil war. Our small country here in the UAE seems to be an oasis of calm, a kind of eye in the storm, while other countries seethe. Saudi frets. Syria seems like a powder keg. As one listens to the rioters in the streets on CNN interviews, what one hears is not a plea for love, sweet love. No, it's a consistent plea for good leadership, good, honest Leadership. The common complaint in these interviews over and again from, from those who have protested and rioted is about bad leadership. They point to leadership that is corrupt, leadership that is self-serving, leadership that is cruel, leadership that is selfish. What I think the world needs now is good leadership. But where do we find it? Our passage today has much to say about leadership, both good and bad. You, you might turn to Mark chapter 6 if you've brought your Bibles or follow with me on the overhead. To recap where we are in the book of Mark as we've walked through the first chapters of the book of Mark, after Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan, he began his ministry. 
he immediately began doing two things. He began teaching people about the kingdom of God and showing people through his miracles and works what the kingdom of God looked like. Jesus wanted people to know that, it, that his authority came to him as the divine Son of God. Jesus did not use his authority to make himself aggrandized or even make heaven on earth for other people. He, he demonstrated that the authority he had in making miracles and doing good works was a mark of his divinity. It showed that he was the divine Son of God. So, so when he showed his power over the healing of the paralytic in the temple, it showed that he had the power to forgive sin. Only God alone had the power to forgive sin. When he wrangled with the Pharisees about how he was Lord of the Sabbath and therefore of the law, he showed his divine authority in that he wrote the law. In the spiritual realm, when he cast out demons or defeated Satan himself, he showed that he had the power to rule over the spiritual world. When he stilled the storm, he showed that he was the creator of the world, that he was Lord of nature. He even made it clear, especially when he raised Darius' daughter from the dead, that he was Lord over life and death. Jesus is Lord. There are competing kingdoms, of course. They demonstrate other kinds of leadership. They aggressively defend themselves. Starting in verse 14, where we left off from Lenny's sermon last week, when the disciples had been sent out to proclaim the kingdom, we'll pick up. Verse 14. King Herod heard of it, that is, the disciples who had gone out and performed miracles. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of the oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went 
and beheaded him in prison and brought the head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is a difficult, difficult passage to preach on. Not because the the meaning is not clear. Actually, it's because the meaning is so clear. It's so grim and gruesome and grisly and awful. But we should rejoice that the Bible tells the truth. The Bible does not pull away from the way the world is. So our our story starts with the thing that most gets leaders' attention, popularity. Someone else's popularity, particularly. The miracles performed by the disciples, the works of miracles performed by Jesus have become known. There's buzz and questions. Who is this man? What is he about? The people, and Herod himself, understand one thing that's true about Jesus, that is, he's a religious man. But they miss everything else about him. Herod, in particular, was a superstitious man. We see that because of his own idea of who Jesus was. Their personal reasons, since he was haunted by a guilty conscience. He had murdered John the Baptist. Herod had murdered John the Baptist. He thought that Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead, sort of a a ghost. Jesus, of course, was not a ghost. But in Herod's mind, he's haunted by this specter. In verse 17, Mark uses a literary device. It's a flashback. It gives us a closer look at both this crazy Herodian family. Some of us come from families like this. And John's murder. Herod, we see in the text, was not only adulterous, but semi-incestuous, having taken his own brother's wife. John called the ruler of the country, Herod, to account for this sin. Regardless of the cost to himself. He was that kind of man. John was brave enough to stand up to the ruler of the country and call him to account. The result, of course, for John was jail. But even there, Herod liked listening to him. Do you notice that? That Herod listened to sermons. He loved John's sermons. I imagine him in the dungeon, sitting there on his chair, the, the jail cell between them, John preaching to him. His own private preacher. His own private sermons. Not that Herod ever did anything about it. <laughs> not, that, not that the sermons meant anything to Herod. He never changed. He never repented. And in some ways, just parenthetically, in some ways, isn't Herod like so many who fill the pews around the world today? Listening, never repenting. Entertaining, never believing. They think, those people who fill these pews, they think that a good sermon is how amused they are, how touched they are, how entertained they are, how affirmed they are. Not knowing that when they leave the church and say, oh, we are so glad to have heard him, that if they don't repent, they're just like Herod. You see that here. Actually, it doesn't matter how skilled the preacher is. 
It doesn't matter how good the sermon is in terms of a dialogical you know, explanation or, a, or an entertaining kind of proposition that makes you laugh or cry. No. The point is truth. Is there truth in the sermon? And if there is, if the sermon is preached according to the gospel of Christ, it sits on judgment on the hearer, not the speaker. And the judgment is this. Do you change? Do you listen to the word of God and repent? Turn from sin. Turn to God. To believe more deeply in Jesus. It's, it's a dangerous thing to listen to sermons but never apply its truth. Because in the end, you will be judged. The sermon sits in judgment on you. Not the other way around. When you leave and say, oh, that was a good one or that was a bad one. No, you, you should be asking, how can I preach that sermon, that sermon of truth in my own life? Redeemer, you are forewarned by Herod. It's not enough to sit in on sermons, to listen, to be amused or to enjoy. It's to repent, to turn. Or you will be trapped just like Herod by your own sin. And, and look at how trapped he was in verse 21. Look at this party. Now, some of us come from backgrounds where we attended parties much like this. Herod thinks he's commemorating his birth, right? He, I don't know what kind of guy throws his own birthday party. I mean, maybe he didn't have enough friends, right? Uh, but he had the power, okay? So he has this birthday party for himself. And look who he invites. He invites the leading people, the leading people of Galilee, the military leaders, the nobles, the leading men, read, rich guys. That's who comes to his party. But listen, listen, you know what his birth commemorated? Herod was born, this Herod was born to Herod the Great. And it was during the days of Herod the Great and about the time, the era, when Herod was born, that Herod was pursuing Jesus, the baby Jesus. He was murdering children. Herod, his father, was murdering children to get at Jesus, the king of the Jews, as the Magi had said. And so he's only continuing, he's only commemorating through his birthday this wickedness that he's inherited from his father. This, this birthday party is a besotted, selfish, elitist, pornographic event. Does the Bible sound relevant or what? <laughs> Herod is... A lecher, we, we know that already, having married his brother's wife and abusive of his power. But in verse 22, we see he's prone to child abuse and child pornography. This young girl who dances, perhaps 13 years old, uh, dances not a tap dance. This is not a sweet little dance. Think pole dancing in a sleazy bar. And after he presents a girl, the daughter of his wife, for all the men to ogle. He then promises rashly in verse 23, perhaps drunkenly, up to half his kingdom. And that's when, in the midst of his pride and his arrogance and sin, he's caught. 
the girl manipulated by her mother in verse 25, seizes that moment, requests John's head on a platter. Even then, even then, Herod seems to have no concern for the fact that he's involving a child in grisly murder. The girl serves up John's head on a platter and in the end, it's a meal of his leadership. Death itself. And don't you know, this party made great press in the tabloids the next day. Judean tabloid. What a party, right? We may not like what we see here about Herod, of course, but the reason there are tabloids is people love to read about it. Herod was trapped by his pride and his desire to save face. But at what cost? Just think, historically, what we remember Herod for. I mean, he's not done yet. He's got still wickednesses to go with Jesus. But what we remember him for from this event is that he murdered the greatest prophet ever. Jesus said, no prophet has been greater than John. Herod is at root that most dangerous, that most capricious of leaders. He's powerful, seemingly almost above the law. And yet he's needy and weak. Do you see how his bad leadership is weak leadership? That no, how, no matter how much power he wields, Herod is a weak man and a weak le- leader. And his greatest weakness is his inability to repent. He's too weak to say, wait, what am, what am I doing? What am I thinking? This is murder. Notice in verse 26 that he's really, really sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You know what? That's not repentance. A lot of us are confused about that. We think if we're really, really sorry, we've repented. That's not repentance. Because he goes ahead and kills John anyhow. He's exceedingly sorry, the text says. But he's not repentant. What's the proverb? As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. (laughs) That's a description of my teenage years. (laughs) I collect proverbs like that. If you have some, tell me about them. They're great. As a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. That's what being really, really sorry is over and over again. It's not repentance. Repentance is that deep recognition that you are in the wrong, coupled with a humble willingness to do what's required to change. That's repentance. Well, how about us? What about us? What's this got to do with us? Well, first of all, think about how much you have to lose if you just try and save face. If your chief goal in life is to look good, to hide your sin, to cover up, rather than turning from sin. Christian, Christian, uh, the inability of so many to say simply, I'm wrong, or I'm sorry, or forgive me, or can you help me with this Repeating, reoccurring sin in my life has destroyed lives. It's destroyed marriages. It's destroyed friendships. 
It's destroyed many a promising walk with God. To those of you who are here who are not Christians, perhaps you're exploring Christianity, we're thrilled you're here. You are so welcome. We want you to know that. You should know as we talk about these passages that Christians believe that, that all of us, all of us, regardless of our background, must repent and believe. I think it's fair to say that there's a Herod in all our hearts. We must be careful about how we look down on Herod. We must see that we're all sinners, broken and weak. We have a Herod in our hearts that wage war against our God. The Bible says, and we sang earlier, that we are known as enemies of God if we've not repented and believed. Herod, like his father before him, kills anything that threatens his rule. And unless you make Jesus your Lord, your King, you will continue in Herod's ways. Maybe not, maybe not exactly. Maybe not you're promising half your kingdom to a young girl. But so many of us are trapped in debt that we're practically giving half our kingdom away to MasterCard. So many of us are so tied to our, our jobs that we're missing our children. So many of us have reoccurring secret sins that sap away spiritual life that we're unempowered in, in the world. So in some ways, we're similar to Herod. It's just he's without restraint. Herod becomes an archetype for us of someone in full-blown sin. And what we would be if we did not have social constraints around us. The only way to break that Herod in our hearts is to turn to God in faith and trust Him with your life. Jesus is the only one that can set the captive free. God has set it up that way. Perhaps you aspire to be different than Herod. Then you must have the will to repent, to humble yourself, even if it means losing face. In fact... It's enough to say that the Christian religion requires it. To be a true follower of Jesus, you must repent of sin, humble yourself, no matter what others think, and place your complete faith and trust in Christ. Have you, have you come to that place where you've truly faced your sin? I don't mean, I don't mean, the, I don't mean kind of those thin, sins that you know, I used to think about when I was, was a kid, you know, don't smoke or drink or chew or run with folk that do. That was a saying in the church I attended. <laughs> I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the deep-seated pride and arrogance that tells God to shove off. I want to run my life my own way. It's only when we face our sin that we understand the massive grace and love of God extended to us in Christ. Let me make a, a shocking statement. I mean, this may not sound all that shocking, but it doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian or if that's your background. It doesn't matter 
if you were born in a Christian home or have parents who were Christians. It doesn't matter what prayer you prayed when you were six, what aisle you walked, what hand you raised. If you have never repented of sin and turned to Christ in faith and belief, then you're not a Christian. You can't be. By definition, Jesus came preaching, repent and believe. So come to him. You can do it where you sit. Through repentance and belief. And listen, if you've called yourself a Christian for a long, long time, and suddenly it's dawning on you that maybe I've been living a lie. That I I say I'm a Christian, but I kind of live for myself. You too, come, come to the cross. Come to Christ. We promise we won't be shocked or surprised. We will honor your willingness to be strong in the grace of God. Well, this story of Herod is horrific. But it provides Mark a sharp relief for the next story he records, the feeding of the 5,000. This is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. Let's pick up in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of fish And those who had ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Notice here how Mark jumps out of the flashback into a different kind of party. It's not a birthday party. In fact, there's a sense that Jesus is gathering people while under the specter of death. Since Herod has murdered John and there are people who are trying to kill Jesus. But it's a party nonetheless. And Mark paints for us a different picture of leadership, one of compassion and of care. Notice the contrast here. Notice the contrast between the party of Herod and the party of Jesus. First of all, it's no wonder, it's no wonder at all that the people are like sheep without a shepherd. That's why Jesus had compassion. They were sheep without a shepherd. You you know why, don't you? 
They're all having parties for each other at each other's birthdays, right? That's why there are no, that's why there are no shepherds. They're running around without leaders. In sharp contrast to Herod, Jesus is selfless. He's tired. His disciples are tired. He has plans for them to rest. But he puts aside his plans to care for the people. In sharp contrast to Herod, look who's invited to the party. The needy, the weak, the hungry. Not the nobles, the military commanders, the leaders. In sharp contrast to Herod, Jesus does not entertain the crowd. He's not looking for approval in his poll rate rankings. He responds to them with love and compassion by giving them what they will die without. And notice the things he does. In verse 34, he teaches them the word. Oh, brothers and sisters, Dave and I and other elders are not just giving lip service when we say we want you to know the word of God. We want to be a gospel-centered church. Jesus' response in love and compassion was to teach them the word of God. And yet, so many Christians are functionally, biblically illiterate. They don't understand the grand themes of Scripture. We want, you, we want you to know these things. We want you to understand the basic tenets of the Gospel and how it relates to your life. We want you to understand the grand sweep of the biblical narrative. We want you to apply yourself as you come to church and listen. Think how the songs and the prayers and the sermons go together. Think about how you can apply, how you can preach these services to yourself as you live out the days. We long for that for you. In verse 36, he trains the disciples to be leaders. He wants leadership to be raised up. Jesus is not, is not a one-man band. He, he longs for others to take leadership with him. So he gives away his authority. He's not worried about turf. He's not, he's not angling about how to keep his, his plot of land. He's not, he's not worried about how other people respond to him and his own leadership. He wants people to lead. He wants people to be raised up. He wants his place to be taken over. He wants them to lead that well. In verse 41, he prays. He acknowledges the one who feeds us. His eyes are on God. He remembers the Lord God. In verse 42, he feeds them real food. He cares for their physical needs. And it, it reminds us, it's an echo of the children of Israel being fed by manna in the desert. In all of this, he lives out the scriptures. There's lots of scriptures that come to mind. Exodus and manna. Ezekiel, the call to be good shepherds. Psalm 23, which we've just read. In fact, we, we can walk through Psalm 23 and see its relationship to this passage. There's only six verses in Psalm 23. Let me, let me read them to you again. Glenn read them. Let me read them to you now. And we can talk about how you see this in this text as Jesus creates a culture of discipleship. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Jesus satisfies. That's why the people ran to him. 
The second verse of Psalm 23, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. They were literally doing that. They came in a boat in the still waters. Jesus calls them to sit in the green grass. The third verse, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Jesus teaches them the word of God. Fourth verse, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. John has been murdered. People are after Jesus. They plot to take his life. They're in the shadow of death. Fifth verse, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. They've picked up 12 baskets of overflow food. Verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know the promises of Jesus that he gave to Nicodemus in the most known verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have, what? Eternal life. In the house of the Lord forever. Don't you hear the prophetic voice of King David as he points to this centuries before, this moment in time when Jesus demonstrated what great leadership was, what the world needs. The shepherd king. You know, sometimes I run across this phrase in the Bible that we see in verse 34 here. That he taught them many things. I always always long to know what that was. What was it he was saying there? Was he speaking out of Ezekiel or Exodus or Psalm 23? Was he saying things that are recorded later? How about this passage from John 10? I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's Jesus. The one who stretched out his arms on the hill called Calvary and put his life on that cross. Stretched out his hands on that cross where they nailed him. They did not tie him. Where they nailed him The only way to know the Holy God is to find forgiveness through the sacrifice of Jesus. That's what the world needs today, that kind of leadership. A servant leader, a shepherd. Just to be clear, Christ's leadership in the world is not of an earthly kind. That's why we as Christians never try to set up an earthly kingdom called a Christian nation. We do not establish Christian nations. We live under Christ's spiritual authority, his spiritual rule. We do that. We enter into that citizenship of heaven by bending our knee to the rule and reign of Jesus, giving up our own personal rule and reign. We recognize that Herod in our heart. We turn from that wickedness 
to belief in Jesus, a belief in who He claims to be, the Son of God, the crucified Lord, the risen Christ, who takes away the sins of the world on the cross. So that all who truly believe in Him, all who truly repent of their sin, will not perish, but have everlasting life. Mark has painted a picture for us of contrasting kingdoms and contrasting kings. The first is a kingdom that is selfish and cruel and full of pride. It's a kingdom of darkness, and in the end, it leads to death. It's leadership that kills. The other is a kingdom of compassion and care. And the leadership of that kingdom is Jesus who refreshes and gives life. Now the choice, the choice of which kingdom is before you today, it's the most amazing offer that will ever come to your life. You can be under the leadership of Jesus. You can choose life and life abundantly by simply acknowledging your need, bending your knee to Jesus as Lord. Is Jesus your leader? Is he your Lord? I would beg you to do that today. It's what the world needs now. Let's pray. Lord God, we are horrified, really, by where sin takes us. We recognize Herod in our hearts. We long to be freed from the fears of sin and death. We long to be out from under your judgment and into your marvelous light. And we would pray, O oh God, we would pray, O oh God, that you would give us the strength to repent and believe every day. Father God, we long to daily pick up our cross and follow you as you've commanded. And we pray, Father, for our community to be strengthened and grown into a culture of discipleship that follows hard after you. Make our party like the one in the wilderness where we are fed by you, O oh God. That Redeemer Church would be a place of refreshment, a place where you are held up and exalted, a place where people are healed and cared for and loved, a place where people know your word. And one day when we stand before your throne, oh God, we pray for the great rejoicing that comes from the freedom in you and knowing you for all eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.